Welcome to Extra Musical, the podcast where we delve into the lives, thoughts, creative process, and hobbies of musicians and other creative artists. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit www.hiddencinemarecords.com slash podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast and everything else going on at HCR, become a patron at www.patreon.com slash hiddencinemarecords. Today, we're sitting down with Sam Blakesley. He's a New York City-based award-winning trombonist and composer. Since his arrival in New York City in August 2017, he's performed at iconic jazz clubs such as the 55 Bar, Smalls, Birdland, Dizzy's Club, the Jazz Gallery, Zinc Bar, Lincoln Center, and the Blue Note. As a band leader, Sam has released four albums, Selective Coverage, The Long Middle, Live at Blue Jazz, and Busy Body. You can read more about Sam in today's show notes, but for now, let's get to the interview. All right, so we're sitting here with Sam Blakesley. Uh, you just heard a little bit about him. Thanks for coming on the show, Sam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so other than like a bio that I just read off for the audience, uh, what is like your story? Who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? Or like where are you based now? Um, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, I kind of got into wanting to pursue music seriously um, about halfway through my senior year of high school. Um, so, and I, I guess I was exposed there through, I got into the Columbus Youth Jazz Orchestra and um, from as like, you know, last chair possible kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but from there, you know, I just, I got really hooked at the music of Duke Ellington and Count Basie, which I had a lot of opportunities to play in that. Um, and then went to Youngstown State, um, our, our fellow alma mater there. Yeah, for my undergrad, and um, and then went to University of Akron for my master's, and then hung around Ohio for a couple of years and some teaching um, at Youngstown and Cuyahoga Community College, Cleveland Institute of Music, and then in 2017 um, I decided to move to New York, and I've been there, been here ever since. Um, just been doing a lot of freelancing and playing trombone, and in the last, but uh, the second half of my time here, I've been focusing more on my own projects. Um, I have like kind of a eclectic chamber group called Wistful Thinking, and then uh, I have a big band, the Sam Blakesley Large Group, um, that's finally getting some steam rolling with some New York venues and stuff coming up. So, yeah, just focusing on that. And that's yeah, story. Like, that, <laughs> <laughs> like sub, summarize your entire life into thirty <laughs> seconds. Go. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Sam, uh, I always tell you this every time I I see you, but Sam was one of the first people I saw running a large ensemble. We uh, both lived in Northeast Ohio at the same time for a little bit of time while I was in grad school, while he was out of grad school, and he was running his large group out of uh, Blue Jazz in Akron. It was just one of the most formative, impactful things that I had. I'd never seen a live contemporary large ensemble before, and I was like, this is, I want to do this one day. Uh, so it was, like, really cool to 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 have that experience uh, watching your group. And now that you're, like, planning on documenting it, it's even, like, well, the second documentation, because there's technically, like, the Live of, there's the Blue, Live of Blue Jazz album, right? Yeah, um, just a short little compilation of some of the things from the residency um, which I'm really glad I'm documenting or documented, um, but I'm looking forward to getting into the studio and doing it for real in a couple months. So, yeah, I mean that that's always really exciting and really daunting of a task. Uh, it is like it's a big band because it is a big band uh, with orchestras like symphony orchestras. They have a whole organization running it, and with big bands, they have you. You're the guy. So, like, what uh, what does a typical day look like for, like, a New York co- trombonist, composer, uh, like, sideman slash leader? What, like, what does your day look like? Um, well, I think the how my days are comprised really depend on um, what my obligations are at that time. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, if I have months where or, you know, weeks that I know that I need to be on a horn a certain amount because of this many gigs or whatever it is, or this many rehearsals in a certain time, then maybe it's a little more just trombone centric. Um, and a, a lot of, I think my day, I try to keep, um, between like nine to five as possible. Um, just because I know that 
there's gigs that'll go late, you know, commuting around New York is a huge drag. So, um, <laughs> it's one of my least favorite things to do, but it's part of what we do. <laughs> I'm pretty um, sure I heard you say the other week that you were like, no, I love getting on the subway. It's my favorite thing. I like the subway. I hate driving. <laughs> Oh, oh driving yeah. makes me lose all faith in humanity every time I get in my car <laughs> in New York. But, but um, yeah, I mean, as far as my day is concerned, um, you know, I kind of split up my practicing into different areas, um, kind of your brass warm up, uh, addressing the physicality of the instrument. Um, I've really gotten into trying to play with more efficiency. Um, and then as the day goes on, maybe I'll make some lunch or something like that. And then the afternoon time, if I'm not going to a gig is, um, is more like maybe addressing some harmonic things that I want to get to, um, some repertoire things that I want to do either in my own music or learning other, like I've been learning a lot of Brazilian music recently, trying to get into that. And then usually by the time that I have those two practice sessions, um, then I feel pretty good for the gig that night without over-practicing or anything like that. Um, but I think the, the writing thing is an entirely different kind of animal. Um, and that I, when I get in the writing mode, it's kind of all encompassing. Yeah. And I have to like really remember that I'm a trombonist <laughs> and yeah. try to keep that together. Um, and luckily like that's one of the things that I, I do like about the freelance, um, kind of life in New York is that, um, you know, I'm typically working three, four nights a week, sometimes more in, in busy parts of the year, um, at a myriad of different things. Um, but even if I'm kind of like hold up in my house during the day, doing a bunch of writing, I can go to the gig and still have FaceTime. And it kind of allows me to, uh, keep up the different areas of my musicianship without having to work on everything all the time. Um, that's something that I found was difficult when I was teaching uh, in Ohio, especially is that I was writing a lot and then I'd go to teach and then I'd try to play, but there would really only be a couple hours left in the day. So yeah, to kind of continue that brass endurance, I find is a little easier um, with the freelance thing. Even if what I'm going to is a wedding or something like that, I can, I can really still hone my, the physicality behind the instrument and try to keep that going as much as I can. But yeah. I remember we were playing together and you were talking a lot about um, your journey with the physicality of playing the trombone and like efficiency, but I don't, I didn't really understand what you meant by efficiency at that moment. Do you mean like lip efficiency, economy of motion, uh, more so like language efficiency when you're playing? Um, all of the above. I mean, I okay. think that um, it all, you know, my, my, thoughts on efficiency all stemmed from, I actually had like a, uh, a, like a nerve injury in 2019, um, that just came from like poor practice habits and trying to barrel through tasks as opposed to taking the time to let them absorb. And I think a lot of it was just like in the first, uh, year and a half or so of New York, you know, taking too much work, um, too much time on the horn. There's lots of overplaying things that kind of crept up. Uh, and that was one of them. So when the injury happened, it kind of like woke me up and it made me realize not only just like the physicality of the horn and like how the, the toll that it can take with such a cumbersome instrument, the toll that it takes on your body, like addressing that uh, with stretching and yoga and making sure there's practice breaks and things. Uh, but then that really kind of stemmed into um, approaching efficiency on the horn, not necessarily uh, like from a pedagogical standpoint, but not from the purpose of being a pedagogue or anything like that. And more trying to just completely limit any of these impediments that, that pop up in our sound or our playing or whatever. So um I think that trying to limit those impediments, whether it's with my air or with my sound, sound is a big one for me. I'm always trying to get to like the center of, of every note that I'm trying to play. And it's not what my goal is, is not, like I said, not from a technical standpoint, but kind of sloughing off all of those 
uh, things we don't want in our playing that obscure the message of what we're trying to do. Yeah. So like I found is is especially since I've kind of tried to get into efficiency in a more holistic sense, it's also really distilled um, my ideas and distilled like my motivic development and distilled my um, I, you know I don't play as out maybe as I used to. Um, and if I do, it's it arrived, it's, it's arrived in a much more, um, meaningful sense as opposed to forcing an issue of something like that. So I think that's, you know, trying to, to address that, uh, efficiency in every area of the horn is something that I've just gotten really interested in. And there, there are of course, physical things with that. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, I think just trying to dilute everything to its like most raw element in your own playing. And I think a lot of the things that I practice, um, like I was working with a student, uh, a great um, student in, in Cincinnati, his name's Spencer Merck, a fantastic trombonist. And I think I kind of lost him a little bit because I was like, all right, what I want you to do is like, you're going to practice for the next month with no tongue at all. You're not allowed to use your tongue whatsoever. <laughs> you know, oh, that Jerry Bergonzi you know, approach. And it just, and trying to get to feel the slide in different ways, trying to mm-hmm. um, work across the horn in different partials. These are all kind of brass specific things, but, but like by taking the element out of that, you can really see what's going on with your playing. So, those are kind of things that I'm really doing a lot um, in regards to efficiency, but yeah, I mean that's a, that's a that's a lot of thoughts that um, <laughs> not necessarily that I think about a lot. Um, for those of us listening, uh, Sam, as we've heard, is a trombone player, and I am a saxophonist, so we kind of have these different approaches to the technicality or the technique of our horn. Whereas, the, especially like you talk about. Uh, brass uh chops like brass the 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 physical element of keeping your chops up for brass playing and that's uh, that's a thing i feel more um for saxophone it's with like this wise and and the voicing thing with your uh, to, uh, something i'm still trying to get together <laughs> but like with with the economy of of language specific and like just efficiency of what you're playing it does. It's very impactful when you play. Uh, like we played a gig together in May of this year at a uh, art center in the in rural Maryland, mm-hmm. and we played this blues. And Sam, and it, it, he really, we had a long conversation the night before about you know just tr- everyone trusting each other to to make the right decisions when you're playing. And Sam and and Tony, who's the bassist, Tony DePaulis, a wonderful bassist, just like the band broke down to just those two. No communication, no eye contact. And then you were playing this motivic development around a blues that was really, really simple, but really, really effective. And your outplaying happened maybe twice. And I was just like, oh, this is one of the best damn blues solos I've heard in a while. <laughs> but like, you're not like overplaying or like sweating yourself to play where I feel like there's a lot of pressure to do that uh, all the time. It's not that you can't do that or that you don't ever do that. But like, I feel like that's some people, they do that every time they pick up their horn. Well, that's, I mean, it's funny because before I moved to New York, that's like all I wanted to play. Like, you know, I really wanted to shred and like get into these different sounds and and everything. And then you move here and you kind of realize, well, that's what everyone's doing. And none of it is really making all that much sense, like in the moment, you know, Mm -hmm. and not to say that they're not amazing musicians, but it's like, you know, there's so many people that I can hear on one night and they play that way. And then I might hear them on a different night. That's a completely different situation. And it's the same stuff from the night before. (laughs) Yeah. And like, and I think a lot of, people especially i mean um especially ones that maybe went through a big institution that had like okay this is what everybody learns that goes through these doors like this is the thing for this place um what can really happen is just um the 
the approach becomes more important than like what the actual intent of playing is. Yeah. And, um, and that's something that I, I really, I heard in myself after I moved, like within a year or so, I was like trying to shred even more and even more and blah, 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 you know, and all of these things that really trombone, it just doesn't sound that good on anyway. <laughs> you know, like, so that's what really kind of pushed me to just, um, and especially over the pandemic, um, you know, it really allowed me to just think about, okay, like, I'm playing by myself now for a year. So how can I, like, it's, it does me no service to shred by myself. You know, what, what can I do um, to just keep this idea going? And that, um, the idea of like motivic development um, became really, really important for me, both in, you know, I saw how, uh, spread thin my compositions had gotten. I saw how spread thin my playing had gotten as, as opposed to like actual substance and developing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and since then it's just been kind of a slow, um, a slow journey into like trying to play a whole lot less with a whole lot more meaning. Um, and I find that I don't really play any less technically just the intent. Um, I, I'm more focused on the intent behind it and not, anything else. And I think that's one of the things that is really difficult about an area like New York or Chicago or LA or like a bigger scene is that I know the space that I was playing from initially was like, Oh, I, I gotta have people notice that I'm here, you know, cause you, yeah. you'll meet people for six months for the first time. They're like, Oh yeah. Nice. Nice to meet you, man. It's like, yeah, we've met like 10 times now, but that's cool. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> there's plenty of that. And I think it really does have like an impact on, on people's playing. Um, and I'm, I don't know, I guess I'm more of an antagonist of like wanting to go in the opposite direction of that. And anyone that wants to use me is, is what can use me, <laughs> you know? I, mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's antagonistic to divergent most definitely, mm-hmm. but not necessarily antagonistic to say, I'm going to have a different approach to playing. And you, it's not even about getting noticed at this point. It's just about not I wouldn't say cookie cutter because I can't, I mean, like, I can't play like New York saxophonist, but like not to play the exact same way. It's like to make a different cutter for your cookies. If everyone's making gingerbread men, maybe you wanted to make a stocking this, uh, this Christmas, you know, like, what was the, this is not a Christmas episode. I don't know why. (laughs) Talk about Christmas cookies, but it's, I, I would say that like it, the, the thoughts that you have on that have when you say them out loud i can reflect on specific moments where i've thought that but didn't have the words to put when i was listening to your playing mm-hmm. so it's interesting and it seems like you're giving yourself the vehicles to to perform in those uh, with that type of like surrounding where you're like wistful thinking is it, it it's a drumless trio right so it's uh guitar bass trombone and uh, alto but, oh, and also, yeah, Chris, yeah. how could I forget? Well, Chris Coles, man. <laughs> um, so, like, you have that uh, drumless quartet, and that's space. That's just so much space where you could be tempted to, you know, go Sonic the Hedgehog on it. <laughs> and uh, that's not the approach that you do. Yeah. I just think, um, I think something that did impact, like, my shift into playing less or playing more motivically is this that like, you know, in the post 2020 world, like stuff just felt so challenging all the time for so long for everyone in like a myriad of ways that I didn't want to, I didn't want to make music (laughs) more challenging than it needed to be. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like, this was, you know, it was a struggle to even keep up any creative output at all or, or reasons to have creative output and it just made me like more interested in um, trying to make improvisation easier. Um, and I think that the the best way that I could come up, or the best way that I was thinking about that at the time, is just through motivic uh, development things. But also, like it it came in, um, it ran concurrent with. I know you've checked it out, but uh, this book by Dave Ravello. Oh uh, yeah. In conversation with Bob Brookmeyer. Um, not only did it just completely open my head up like from writing for large ensembles or things like that, but taking those 
concepts of like construction and like generative material and really trying to just improvise like that. So there's really not this huge barrier between what my writing sounds like and what my playing sounds like. Um, but yeah, the constructing ideas Oof. became a, a big, a big part for me, you know, that's, that's kind of heavy. The, the phrase that you just said, like that there's not a barrier between what my writing sounds like and what my playing sounds like. Um, yeah, because that, that can be a thing for some musicians who like write in a sound that they hear and, and are really, really contemporary with their sound, but then only practice like a certain like style of playing and it's, or the opposite. And it's just like, how do we marry those two ideas together? And I guess it's through, um, not dedicated because they're already dedicated practices, but like very thoughtful practice into, into merging those ideas. Yeah. 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 I guess in your opinion, what's like the most important personality trait that not necessarily that you embody, but that you feel like someone needs to do what you do as like a freelance trombonist, uh, as a composer, as a creator of sorts? Um, well, I think like the first, the first thing is just like trying to be as humble as possible. Um, I mean, I think that's, supersedes <laughs> just being a professional musician. But I think that like, you know, it's, it's a double edged coin or two sides of a coin that I've really found in New York where like, you have to be humble and like realize that there are masters of this music mm-hmm. that have been doing it for 30 years longer than you that you're sharing the stage with and you have to compete with and you have to learn from and everything. But then at the same time, you have to carry yourself like simultaneously as one of those people, um, just for your own, um, kind of like mental state (laughs) almost because there's just, there's so, and, and it's not from a place the the latter is not from a place of hubris, but it's just from a place of like recognizing your self-worth, you know? And that's one of the things that, took me a long time to get next to um, is not trying to sound like other people or anything like that. And I, I think that, so being humble is, is super important. I think that um, it's really antithetical, but I feel like the, the best thing that you can, the best personality trait that you can try to have is someone who is not concerned with, individualism and that's like extremely difficult when you are a solo (laughs) freelancer you know it's like i am the whole business what do you mean i can't be an individual you know or what do you mean i can't i can't contain individualism and it's not that you're not an individual but it's about where you put your stock in being one you know and like i think that a lot of um a lot of my my problems that I dealt with in my early 20s or even when I moved here, uh, a, a lot of them just came from trying to, trying to hold myself as this individual voice like way too soon. And once you're holding yourself in that manner of like, I am a serious composer and I am a serious trombonist, <laughs> then that just like completely shuts you off from so much information because you're too busy holding up essentially a facade of like who you are and what you're doing to the world as opposed to, and putting so much mental energy into that as opposed to like just continuing the study and continuing the search and being open to different things uh, musically or not musically, you know, but I think that that's one of the things that is one of the real like um, 
paradox? Paradox is the right word. Yeah, yeah, paradoxical. Yeah. Um, that we're in that like, you know, we have to be both. We have to be promoting ourselves online to have people hear our music. Yeah. And then we have to be working on the music as though no one's ever paying attention to it. <laughs> you know, it's like with, with and with the goals of no one finding out about it, but we're just doing it for our own our own gratification. You know? Yeah, like if I if I made this thing and absolutely no one listened to it, would I still be like, am I what am I, what is my goal of yeah. making it? So like and it's the whole thing of like I guess commerce versus creation is is which one is your is your is your due north is your true north like is it necessarily the creation that's your true north is it the commerce that's your true north is it something that's different than those two is it more so the community itself i mean i feel like there's a lot of people who are really really passionate about like just having this community of people who love a music versus like creating the music or like buying and selling and uh, the music. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I guess that, that ambivalent way of life is, is an interesting personality trait kind of like thing to embody. But I wouldn't necessarily, um, I wouldn't call it ambivalence. I think okay. it's, I think it's, um, choosing your battles of like where and when you're going to put certain energy into certain things. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what has gotten, it was so difficult for me when I did the long middle because, you know, um, that was like my first record that I'm like putting out on like a, you know, major label and with the publicist and yada yada, like all these expectations get set up. And um, it was really difficult to, um, you know, I felt like the more that you promote yourself, the more that you start playing the comparison game of what other people are getting and what you're not getting or whatever. Yeah. And, and like, you know, just now with the realization that like, yeah, sometimes if you want to be releasing music in today's industry or today's climate, like that's going to be the vibe. Like, you know, from September to November, it was all internet. It was all like (laughs) all digital stuff getting ready for the release of Busybody. You know, and then since December 15th, all I've done is work on a commission. Like, that's it. You know, I haven't been posting anything, you know, and just like trying to to be cool with that ebb and flow um, as opposed to feeling like you need to do everything at all times. That's when like nothing happens. Yeah. It's like where I guess you, you, you saying that just reminds me that when I read about promotion and marketing and all this stuff, I really feel like it comes from the eyes of people who aren't actively creating things a lot. So they, their, their job is the marketing. So of course it can happen all the time because they wake up and do it all the time. Whereas like the, the artists themselves who has their, they, they are in involved in the marketing and they want to market their things. They don't put it out for no one. They, I mean, they do and they don't, but like it can't happen all the time every day. And if it does happen all the time every day, that means you're saying yes to that and you're saying no to something else. Exactly. Like, yeah. Oh, There's a, a quote from, um, I'm, I'm really into the teachings of Ram Das, and there's a, a quote from him that he talks about that I think like encapsulates this like predicament so well where um, you know, his whole, he gives all these lectures on how to let go of your ego and how to connect with your true self and how to dig deeper into more meaningful way of living and everything like that. And, you know, how much the ego is evil and all of these things, but there he is, this guy making a living, (laughs) (laughs) giving lectures, you know, and, and, and his whole thing is like, you know, I realize that I have to do both. I can't, you know, like I can't put food on the table if I don't share this information. You know, if I'm right. not constantly doing these lectures and constantly traveling the country, connecting with people in this way. And I think that that's something that really helped me. Like, you know, you can't do both of them at the same time. Well, 
but there will be times where you have to just do both. And once I got more cool with that, then it got easier, you know, and seeing like, okay, September to November was all internet. So (laughs) from November to February is not, (laughs) and that's like the time to really invest, um, in myself musically and whatever, whatever that means to me, you know? Yeah. Like it's kind of like seasons, the seasons, what of, of what hat you're wearing and how it fulfills or benefits you. Maybe it's not as fulfilling, but it does benefit you. And then maybe it's not as, as financially beneficial, but it is musically and soul filling beneficial. I mean, like no one's paying you to hit the shed, you know what I mean? No one's paying you to, to, to study anymore or to study at all, but to continue learning. And I feel like when people are like, Oh yeah, no, you, you're done learning. It's because it's not, they feel like it's not beneficial to them financially, but yeah. like, how can you not learn forever? Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know. What's, um, what's one thing about like your, your creative life, your artistic life that you like didn't expect to happen. So in your projection journey, you're in fourth chair trombone, you're playing that Duke Ellington, you're thinking, oh, maybe I could do this. And you like pitch it to yourself as a 17, 18 year old. What's one thing now at the age of, I don't know how old you are <laughs> that you didn't expect. Um, I think the thing that I, didn't expect is just how long it takes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like I think we had, you know, we both went to Youngstown state and um, you know, the name and person of Sean Jones, like looms so heavily over that place. And, you know, I owe so much to Sean for my development when he would come through campus and when he was running this Cleveland jazz orchestra and just like using him as a model for work ethic, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was all really, really, really helpful for me um, to want to put in put in the work. Um, but it also, you know, it it makes you be really focused on like external dead or external times that you're going to be doing something. You know, it's like, oh well, Sean was in Lincoln Center by the time he was 25. Yeah, so that's, yeah. That's 25 is when I need to be in New York doing the same thing, you know, or it's nothing, you know. And I think that that's like one of the it's such a long term investment, you know, if you want to freelance, if you want to be developing your voice, it takes so long. And that's that's part of the reason why I, I haven't recorded the big band album yet. It's like I've been focusing on that project for 10 years. And I just felt like I just always had like more to learn and more to get together and more to polish. And now it's like, Oh, it's ready. You know, it's like 10 years later than I was initially (laughs) thinking, but it's like when the music gets recorded, I'm going to be really happy with it. And, um, you know, and I think that's the other thing. It's like, you know, I've been in New York over half a decade now and just now is stuff happening with the frequency or the quality, um, the, the sideband thing came a little quicker, um, but in regards to my own projects, it just takes forever. It takes so long. And I think that that's um, what was really different, where it was like, you know, when I was in school, when I was out of school, like, if I do this and this and this, then, you know, the quote is like, the music will take, if you take care of the music, the music will take care of you. Yeah. And it's like, that's absolutely true. But the music is in no is in no way responsible for when it takes care of you. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's not, it's not, there's no, you can't give it a timeline no. and then say, Oh, okay. Well, if it doesn't happen by now, then it, it, it obviously is not true. Yeah. Like I feel I like mean, the I, only, I just remember, well, sorry. I just remember like insane thoughts that I would have. Like when I was freshly out of school, I think I was like 25 or 26, you know, I had a teaching gig and it was all well and good, but I felt like my, my development was really staying at a certain place. And I was like, all right, well, you know, I did everything that I could. I guess I'm just going to be here for now (laughs) for the rest of my life. You know, I mean, just insane, insane thoughts where now it's like, I don't don't know what you mean. I've never felt that way before. Never, ever. Yeah. Never, never did I like look around and go, Oh, well, this is what it will be forever. It's just crazy that like we have this, 
ex- this intrinsic slash extrinsic. Pro- we have this intrinsic or internal pressure to look externally to 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 set our deadlines for things and say that it has to happen. But I remember um, when Smash <laughs> deciding the release date for it. Uh, it was originally supposed to come out in April, and then it got pushed back to to June by uh, the label it was getting released with, and. I was really sad because I wasn't releasing it before I was 30. Like that was yeah. the only reason I didn't like the date. I was like, no, I want to, I want to release this before I'm 30. If that's the goal. And then on my 30th birthday, that was why I was sad. It was, <laughs> it was like, I'm I didn't get to release it because uh, before I'm 30, I am a total loser. <laughs> but and that's the thing. It's like everything that I thought was going to happen at 25 is, is probably going to happen at 35. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's, you know, you start to see stuff change and, and, and even little, um, you know, I, it just feels even weird to talk about, but it's like, you know, in a couple of weeks, like I'm going to be at the Grammys. It's like, what? You know what I mean? Like I never would have thought that was even the case. And it's like, well, if you just were down to wait a little bit longer, you, yeah. <laughs> you know, oh my gosh, yeah, you're on Remy's album. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, shout out to Remy LaBeouf for the oh, yeah. for the Grammy nom. Incredible, incredible yeah. music, incredible person. Yeah, uh, the, the, there were a couple of great albums that I was like really glad got a uh, got nominated. But yeah. like, yeah, yeah. So the, the it is taking care of you, and you're taking care of it, which are, it's like this like nice little musical synergy that's happening between you and the universe. <laughs> um, you mentioned someone that was it Ram Das. Yeah. Yeah, is that is he like a Buddhist uh, teacher or? He's like a really, um, really syncretic kind of mystic uh, theologian. Like he kind of takes a lot from Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity. Mm-hmm. He grew up Jewish, um, so that's a part of his background too. But he, you know, he he really works um, in analogies, and that's how I really think. Like that's how I teach is in analogies, and that's how okay. I, respond to information well um so it's been really helpful for me um but yeah he's he kind of takes a little bit of everything i I think you'd probably be closest to like if you were to put a denomination to it like a very eastern um uh leaning like universal unitarian kind of thing okay cool so um for those of us listening i'll put uh a link i'll look up some stuff and put the link to him in the uh show notes as well um, so outside of music, because we are musicians and we are creative artists and all this, but we're also like people and we like things and we do other things. Is there like stuff outside of music after you've done your nine to five or before your gig or the days that you don't have gigs that like kind of recenter you that feed into your creative process? Don't feed into your creative process, like kind of recenter you. What's the stuff you like? Um, well, I think over the last last year or so this year and some change. Um, I have for the first time in my life, I've like really picked up a hobby outside of music and that's like hiking and doing outdoor stuff and backpacking and camping. And, um, that has been, has now become like a very big part of my life. And this is the part of the year that I start feeling incredibly antsy because I just can't get out as much as I would like, Yeah, uh, both because of, um, weather but then also because of daylight just makes it harder to get out of town and get up there <laughs> to where yeah. i want to go um but that that has become a huge part of my life and um and i'm really really grateful for it um and i think a lot of that just kind of was almost like um something that was forced by new york because in my where I live in Brooklyn, it's on one of the busiest streets. So like, you know, hopefully you're not hearing it too much, but I'm not, I'm hearing it all. Fantastic. (laughs) Um, But it's like, you know, constant road noise, dirt bikes and horns and sirens and everything, you know, it's, it can be a really uh, overwhelming place, like sonically for me. So um, investing in, in gear in which I could really get into some backcountry stuff um, has really, really shaped my, not only just my personal life, but then like, um, it's, it's created more of a division that like, I, I am more than a musician, you know? 
and I think that like there's um, uh, do you know Dennis Reynolds uh, trumpet player he lived in Warren and he was um, Sean's teacher and he, he's a fantastic trumpet player that um, I think I just met him in oh, yeah. in July yeah I, I just met him for the first time in July well he um, I was able to spend a lot of time with him when I was younger and one thing he said to me that I think I was like 22 or like 23 and he said something to me that I just like could not wrap my head around. And he said, uh, you know, music is what I do. It's not who I am. And at the time, my identity was so enmeshed in that, like, I'm a jazz musician. I'm a jazz musician. Hey, everyone, look, I play jazz. And hey, did I tell you I play jazz? You know, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. And I just couldn't wrap my head around there being any separation between, you know, who I am as a person and what I do. And, um, I think that that has gotten easier as I've gotten older to see like the importance of that because otherwise it just becomes like lessons and obligatory actions. You know, if, if your whole life is revolving around, well, this is what I do and I must, I must do this, you know? And I, I think that one of the stupidest things that I did was on a backpacking trip, I bought a P bone so I could bring it backpacking and I could play like, you know, a couple minutes after, after the hike each day, I slept this thing for like, you know, 10 extra pounds in like a 35 mile backpacking trip. And I played it like for maybe collectively like two hours over the course of six days. Maybe, you know, it's I was like, gonna say, you said 35 miles and I was like, how long does that take? <laughs> but it's like, you know, I could have just left it at home and I probably yeah. would have been better off for so many reasons. You know what I mean? Just lip buzzing so, while you're. Yeah, maybe you know, even that. So, so, and this is even last summer. You know, this is uh, not not a long time ago. So, you st- I still struggle with it sometimes. But the outdoors thing is what's been really uh, helpful. Just creating like a little bit of uh, reprieve from whatever is happening. You know, I appreciate when I get to see your outdoors. I I was talking to a friend earlier and I said, oh, I'm interviewing this dude named Sam later. And uh, on the podcast, I want to talk about like what people do outside of music that they uh, love. And I know he's going to say hiking. I hope he's <laughs> hiking because I want uh, to include in the show notes, like at least one or two of the photos that you take when you're just at these views, you're just like out there. And it's for me, when I see it, I'm like, wow, it's really beautiful. I not have no desire to go backpacking. It's just that, no, no, seriously, I feel like I uh, people can take very hard stances on things and be like, no, I'll never do that. But it's just like, it's not never, it's never been something that's been brought up. Like, hey, you want to go on a 35 mile backpack? <laughs> it's intimidating at first, yeah, yeah. I guess. But like, it seems like it's like really centering and worth it at the end of it. Were like some of the, if you could name three favorite places that you've been, uh, that this hobby has like brought you to, that have kind of taken your breath away or brought you to a different I guess, mindset or thought. Oh, man. Um, well, I'll start. I'll try to go chronologically if that helps. Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, but it, it all kind of started. I went on like a, a trip with some of my childhood friends out to um, Olympic National Park in October 2021. And um, I was getting over a really difficult period of time with the pandemic and losing work. And uh, my grandma passed away. And it was yeah. like, and my wife started school, like all, we, we moved, my grandma passed away, my wife started a master's degree all within like a week and a half of each other. And it was just a ridiculously difficult time. And I was so immersed in whatever problems I was having. And then we went this hike that like started at 4,000 feet and we ended like at over 6,000 feet in this gorgeous mountain range. And, you know, you just look 360 degrees around you and there's no one around. There's no Mm -hmm. one there. And it just, it made me feel so small in like a good way, (laughs) you know, and just like the, the humbling power of nature that, you know, all of these things just exist around you and you can choose to engage with it as much as you want. But, but typically um, that kind of feeling of like, man, like maybe my problems aren't as, aren't as crazy as I'm, thinking they are (laughs) uh that was a and then that that trip um i was also very uh made aware of physically how difficult 
some of those hikes over on that trip. And my friend that lives out there was like, oh, this one wasn't too bad. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know? um, so that was also, like, part of it. Um, it was a nice little wake-up call. But um, And then so that's kind of what started the hobby. And then um, over the winter, me and my wife, like, invested in a lot of gear and planned out some trips. And I think that the, the most – uh, meaningful moment I've had was on the backpacking trip I mentioned and we were in the Adirondacks and uh, it was like a 35 or 36 mile loop so at one point you know we're 15 miles in either direction from the trailhead um, and even the trailhead was like remote you know so like this is back country and we went 48 hours at this beautiful lean-to like at this this place called the Cold River with all these gorgeous uh, like rock formations and we were just there for 48 hours and didn't see anyone. No one came through and it was like just us and the wilderness. And I realized that I have never in my whole life, like not been around anyone for 48 hours, like in some capacity. And that just was really, um, really enlightening. Um, not only just how nice it was and how tranquil and everything, but, it was really uh, illuminating of just how much like unnecessary stimuli um, were subjected to both like externally, like there was just a car horn like outside right now, you know, and then, <laughs> and also it's like, if I'm bored, you know, I'm getting on my phone or all the, all this stuff, like there's all of this interjections into leave, living like a much more centered um, life. And if I'm living a centered life, then I'm like way more creative. You know, I only started and, and this, you know, I don't want to read in too much to this, but like, you know, a lot of the validation that I was searching for as a young person and didn't get, um, in, in, in music, um, I only started getting when I started making the time for myself to do the things outdoors. Yeah, And it was almost like as soon as I started like really investing my time in that, then everything else kind of started falling into place. And it was almost like I had to let it go <laughs> to receive it, you know? Yeah. Um, I like I that those two, phrase. Those two were really, really meaningful for me. But Well, I um, uh, hope you, I hope you can like send me, if you have any photos from any of that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely include that in the show notes. Uh, I feel like anytime I see views like that, I go, I think to myself, I should do that. And then I make absolutely no time to do it at all. So <laughs> thanks. I'm going to live vicariously. You, you've got your, you're, you're, you're a lifter, right? You know? Yeah. You've yeah. Got, me and my wife both power lift. So that's my, see, yeah. It's all, it's not about like, and that's the thing too. It's like, it's not about what it is. It's oh, as long as you have something. Having that thing, you know? Yeah. Another thing recently has been disc golf. I, oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, uh, my friend Ryan, he always pushes me to do new things. I really love him for that. He challenges my negativity and pushes me to do... You know, I know, really, we were driving once, and I, like, cursed somebody out. And he was like, wow, you're really angry. I think they were okay. I was like, jeez. Uh, but uh, he pushes me to do new things like disc golf. Um, and since, I think it was October... We went for the first time. Uh, each week, I want to go throw at least once, and I I feel like I'm the the most sane about it out of our friend group that lives down here. We have a group chat. We're like constantly sending each other different discs, and then talking what where are we going? Are we going today? Zoo or shoe? Or the name of two different parks? Or there's this one oh Trap Pond, this beautiful park in Delaware. Um, it wasn't 13 or 15 miles uh, remotely, but I was at least a mile away from. <laughs> Like where it started, I was yeah. like, if there's not a thing here, I'd be dead. I have no <laughs> idea where to go. Yeah, but um, yeah, so like different things. Uh, not not saying um, I want to live vicariously because my things are insufficient, but I that's a, it's a beautiful view. I mean, like it's probably totally worth it. And if I ever had a chance to have that sort of view that you earned with your. 15 or mile in one direction walk uh walk i walk like it's like it's flat <laughs> yeah you know i'm just walking yeah. <laughs>
so uh, you talked about some suggested reading with uh, the Bob, uh, the In Conversation with Bob Brookmeyer by uh, Dave Bravello. Uh Is there anything that you're like listening to lately, like music, uh, non-music, like podcasts, anything you're reading lately that you're like, man, I wish other people were hip to this? Um, well, there's a, a book, um, it's funny, I'm, I'm, I'm a horrible procrastinator, and, uh, there's a book called The War of Art, which The is, War of Art, yep. Which, uh, it, I'm, I'm so the clientele that needs to read this book because I've procrastinated finishing the book about procrastinating. <laughs> I'm thinking the right book, um, the, uh, With the Resistance and... Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But the, the idea of territory and hierarchy, um has really uh, been at the forefront of my mind. And I think that that really started um, enabling me to, like, just be a person in New York. Uh, because if with so many musicians and so many venues and so much going on, you know, um, I've spent so much time here being caught up in the hierarchy of, like, man, like, this person has a gig here and I can't get a gig here. What's going on? Where, where am I at the, the totem pole of this, you know? Yeah, all these things, and um, you know, it made me really think about. You know, when I was in Ohio, uh, there was things about it that were challenging for me, but one thing that was not at all challenging was um, creating that territory because it was like open pastures. Like anything that you wanted to do, you know, it's like, oh, I have a big band. Blues, like, oh, do you want a monthly gig? It's like, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Well, you know, whereas in New York, it's like, you know, I've been emailing clubs for five and a half years. And just now, it's over half a decade of emailing clubs <laughs> just to get a gig that I know I'm going to lose money hand over foot on. I am. Yep. And, yep. and, you know, I'm like, really, really grateful I'm playing at Birdland uh, next month, you know, and that's really exciting and I'm very happy for it. Um, but like, uh, trying to consume myself with the territory of like, I, I write music. Like there are a lot of, there's a lot of trombonists in New York who like just want to play trombone and that's what they want to do. And they're like really good brass doublers and they're fantastic readers and that's their territory, you know? Um, but for me, like I just kind of, um, surrendered to the fact that like my territory is like writing music and playing it and yeah. when, I, when I'm focusing on that if I'm focusing on that and making it maybe maybe oversimplifying it then I find stuff to be uh, working in tandem much better with each other um, yeah. so yeah that, that territory versus hierarchy thing is really interesting to me that's uh, funny because it seems more like uh, like longitudinal thinking or like like horizontal thinking than vertical thinking when you say territory versus hierarchy i know no one can see my hands right now (laughs) but i'm doing like horizontal versus vertical so like it's all equal playing field and we're all just staking not staking your claim but just mapping the land that you like to walk Mm -hmm. and let everyone walk versus like someone being on top of the other person yeah yeah there's, there's like certain people in new york that i really have um, tried to model model my own endeavors after like there's a fantastic trombonist named Ryan Keberly. Oh yeah, who, like you know it's like every six months that cat has some amazing new project, you know, and it's all really diverse and different, and he's willing to do different things and show off different parts of his musicianship or different aspects of his writing, and um, and I don't really get a sense that he's all that concerned with other people that are like doing the same thing, but rather that's just what he does. That's just what yeah. he's going to do, you know? Uh, so that's, that's been a lot. Uh, my, my mind has been a lot clearer um, since just focusing on the territory, but like if you set up your own territory, like no one can, no one can invade that space of my own like compositions. No one can invade the space of my own development, you know? If I'm thinking in that way, if I'm thinking hierarchically, well, then there's Marshall Jokes and there's Ryan Keberly and there's Elliot Mason and there's all these, uh, I can, you know, in my neighborhood in Astoria, there's John Fedchuk, Jim Perry, <laughs> Elliot. You know, it's like right. all these people, it's like, you know, <laughs> it's impossible to not compare. Uh, 
in some way. Um, but really, like, I just feel like life is too short anymore. And I think it's because I played the comparison game so much that it was just like, all right, I don't want to keep living my life. Doing this. Yeah, <laughs> living my life as a comp- comparing my life yeah. to someone else who yeah. is not even worried about me at the end of the day. No. Well, and hopefully not. Like, <laughs> if anything, but, they just want to grab a beer with you and hang out. Like, yeah, you know? <laughs> they're like, yeah, I hope he's doing well. Yeah, and we're yeah. taking up some of our mental energy, going, "Well, man, they're just exactly. they're taking this, they're taking the spot that's meant for me." Yep. Yeah. Instead of like creating your own space, man, I I appreciate that idea. You had just talked about the uh, gig that you have coming up at Birdland. This episode is actually going to drop the monday before that gig so that is on what sunday again uh sunday february 19th oh actually it's gonna drop a little bit before that gig this is uh if you're listening to this on the day it releases it's february 6th uh so this is gonna drop a little bit before that uh so we have that exciting debut at birdland for the sam uh sam blakesley large group but we have more exciting things uh, in like Sam's uh, future, more exciting, not other exciting things in uh, Sam's future as well. And we had uh, talked about it earlier uh, that you're planning to go into the studio. How are you paying for that, Buster? I will be doing a crowdfunding campaign um, that's actually going to start uh, towards the end of the month in January. And um, this this will have aired by the time that we do it, but we're doing starting it off with a fundraising concert at uh, Blue Jazz in Akron on um January 28th and then I'll be running a crowdfunding campaign all the way from that around that time to about mid-April and then we're going to be going to the studio last two weeks of April for almost we're going to try to do three days of recording and um, I have about two albums worth of music that I'm going to try to get done so we'll get as much of it done as we can and then book another little one if we need to but that's the plan so that is exciting and as anyone who's ever done a big band album or any album at all before can tell you uh listeners it's a daunting task whether it's two people one person 17 people playing one conducting a producer maybe some guest soloists and all that that that's a lot to manage produce and all that um i'm really excited for for you and that this is uh that you feel comfortable with it finally happening yeah i'm excited about it well i'm also very glad my wife is a project manager who's an excel whiz because she set me up with deadlines and everything so she really helped (laughs) get my uh oh hell yeah wait oh oh gosh that's awesome very lucky oh (laughs) man my just me oh god no hate towards kelly because i i hope kelly will listen to this but like no hate towards kelly but sometimes she's like what date is that thing again and i'm like cal no <laughs> so it's like the complete opposite because what i'm one of how are you not aware of everything that i booked without right. talking to you at all right. uh, <laughs> so um i'm gonna uh put a link to uh sam's uh crowdfunding campaign into the show notes and hopefully you guys can so support for that uh upcoming album uh worth of material or upcoming two albums worth of material but the whole goal is to get that album funded after or before the show is even premiered he would have had a really really great album uh Crowdwell funding show at Blue Jazz in Akron. I wish I lived in the area still because I would definitely be out for that. But the Birdland one is really exciting. That's um, that's something that's going to be really, really cool. So um, good luck to you, Sam, with all that. I really appreciate your time and your thoughts on music and hiking and uh, Unitarian uh, Universalism. I don't know. The, I don't know denominations, but um pseudo unitarian uh thoughts and all that and is there anything else you wanted to uh say to the podcasters before we uh left off oh um i think that's about it (laughs) all right thanks thanks for having me steven all right and thanks to you for uh taking the time out and listeners thank you for listening this is the first episode of extra musical uh we'll have some more information after the podcast is over but thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of Extra Musical. Extra Musical is a Hidden Cinema Records production. 
Please be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts and look out for future episodes. Bye for now.